you need to know yourself. Mm -hmm. What do you like? And then kind of go from there. But like mm -hmm. the best way to get there, what I tell my kids is try in the beginning, try a bunch of shit. Don't, don't be afraid to try stuff and fall on your face because it's in that journey where you'll find out, oh, this is what I love to do. Mm -hmm. I tried everything else. I, I had the courage to go after everything else. This is what I really like. Welcome to the Fuel Hunt Show. What's going on, Eagles? I'm Joey, and welcome to the Fuel Hunt Show. As always, I'm here with my cousin and co-founder, Drew. And today, we have a very mm -hmm. special guest. World champion fighter, in my opinion, greatest lightweight of all time. Husband, father, one of the few, Eddie Alvarez. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. <laughs> for, yeah, first and foremost, thank you for coming in, taking time out of your schedule to spend it with us. Um, and even beyond that, thank you for believing in what we're doing and always repping the few. Like whenever I see you, whether it's you're doing something local or you're doing something national or you're on the world stage, you always have some type of on. So uh, I appreciate that very much, man. Well, you, you guys are excellent at what you do too. And I... I, I I appreciate you guys because um, some companies don't get it. Even companies, um, and and I mean, just to get it out there, we've never exchanged money ever. Mm -hmm. I I wear your clothes because I love them. I love the quality of them. I yeah. love what you guys do. You, you care about the clothes that people are wearing. We've never exchanged money at all. Yeah. I've wore companies. They pay me, mm -hmm. and then they send me like two shirts, and I'm like. What? <laughs> Do they not get it? If the more clothes you give me, the more likely yeah. I am to grab these things and yeah. wear them, yeah. like on a whim, where where I'm going. Especially if it's good, good, good quality clothing. So like, okay. you guys always keep me fitted, always sending me boxes, and I appreciate that. It's clothes I want to wear. So yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how that works out because it goes back to our core value of give first. It's yep. like when we when I first connected with Eddie, he was like, he was very, he was. You could tell you're a little like, uh, just like. Skeptical, right? Like it's another guy, like just trying to like use me for my like what I built. You know what I mean? And I, yeah. we always just came with that giving hand. And I remember yeah. saying, like, dude, like we have a Philly legend, like someone that walks, eats, sleeps, and breathes our mantra. Like we have to make sure that like, we take care of him. So we, and we were on a budget at first too. So like we, we just could only send gears. So we sent as much gear as we possibly could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I get that. You do what you can. I mean, yeah, you, you can feel. You can feel the Philly in our clothing like i say that a lot to the community like you can feel philadelphia in our clothing like what we're about you know and we always say like fuel hunt the idea for fuel hunt the community was born on the streets of philly because literally we had the idea when we were driving i was driving in frankfurt you were driving in the northeast it came up on the phone you know yeah. what i mean and like that grit like you can feel it in our clothing you know yeah, what I, mean? I love it, man. Yeah, I love it. Keep it going. I'm proud. I'm proud of you guys. Just as, far, as long as you, as far as you came, as long as you can, I could be a small part of that. That's, that's all I want, baby. Yeah, I appreciate that, bro. I love to see. I, I love to see that. Philly guys win. Yeah. <laughs> likewise, likewise, likewise. So our community, the Fuel Hunt community as a whole, right? They have great admiration and respect for you, what you've done, what you've built, right? But they know what you've done. What they're really interested in is how you did it, right? So that's like your your come up story. Like that's what they want to hear from you. How you went from, you know, a kid in Kensington to a world champion, like the real life Rocky. Like that's what they want to hear um, from you. So this may be different than some of the other shows that um, you've done maybe. Uh, we're not going to talk about recent bouts or anything like that. We're going to talk yeah. about like the come up as long as you're cool with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's great, man. Yeah, yeah. When, look... So when you talk about the few, um, like the few, like uh, I picture and think about something like unique, something unique that was unique to me as a kid growing up, and um, a lot of a lot of that was one. It's not unique if you live in Philadelphia to grow up in a tough area, or grow up like with not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. That's kind of not unique. But what 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 I did have that I felt like there was a competitiveness about me. I was third born and mm -hmm. I didn't get picked for a lot of games. So I was a small, small little maybe run of a kid and I didn't get picked to play a lot. My, my, the kids on the block were a little bit taller, a little bit bigger, a little sure. bit older. So like, I think what was unique about me is my, um, just wanting to play. I didn't care. Failure was like the least of my worries. It was, mm -hmm. I was so excited about getting to play. 
Yeah. <laughs> like if you just let me in the game, I'll be, that's enough, that's enough for me. And I had gratitude for that. It wasn't like, will I win? Will I lose? I just wanted to play. Yes. So like for me, that was probably my biggest driving factor. And, um, winning became a really important part after I got in the game. Like, man, I'll get, I'll get even more love if I win at the game too. So like mm-hmm. yeah. that was uh that was something unique when I was smaller for sure. So what was, what was life like? We were talking before the show started that, you know, I'm from front Ontario, you know, not too far from where you grew up. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what was life like on the block? You mentioned the block and the other kids, like what was life like on the block? Like, I'm curious how similar it was to mine or different. Um, what was a typical day like? Come out on the stoop and then what happens? Yeah, so um, crazy amount of kids on my block growing up. Um, and in, I was born in 84, so between 84 and 95, like that, them 10 years of my life, it was epic. Like a uh, real blue-collar neighborhood. Everybody worked, came home. You hear parents yell on the block. My mom, mom yell all of our names. Hey, come for dinner. Go up for dinner. But yeah. like a lot of kids, we played freedom. We played two hand touch. We played tackle football. Um, tons of kids. So like Kensington was like that. And um, there wasn't, it wasn't like crime ridden. It was a really nice area, real ni- really nice area to live. Yeah. Um, and then up until about about right around ten years old, that's when things got just changed completely like it went dark it went from like the nicest place ever to live to you just started seeing drugs come you started seeing uh section eight i say so i say moreover section eight killed every beautiful neighborhood inside of philadelphia the the idea of section eight housing kind of crushed what was mm. going on you, yeah. you they started giving uh people stuff for free and yeah. that that was a problem given housing for free giving they started giving handouts for free Mm -hmm. and not making people earn them and -hmm. feel proud about what they're getting so like that was a that was a problem and it destroyed the neighborhood and it made it dangerous and it made it not a good place to live but as a kid man it was amazing yeah i I have that same so i was i was there for a little less time than you were and then we moved to junietta actually like right up from Hunting Park Ave, like right up from uh, north. Yeah. Yeah. And I went to Holy Innocence. So I went from Ascension to Holy Innocence. Yep. um, Because it did seem like things flipped quicker than one would believe they could in the neighborhood as far as like, you know, safety and family fabric and things like that. You know, it changed quickly. Real fast. Especially on the block. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On my block in particular, like there there was a, there was a, I think Jamaicans came in and started selling. That, mm-hmm. that was the first that was the first thing and then there was a war between the Jamaicans and the guys who were originally there selling yep. drugs so then it went from selling drugs was the worst thing now people are murdering each other over uh, it. yeah right on the smaller blocks where you know you can do things and get and, and but my block luckily was a little bigger mm-hmm. a lot of kids on it um so there wasn't a lot of drug activity on my particular block but just all the surrounding blocks were hey. Then you got robberies. It just it all just kind of is a domino effect. Mm-hmm. It just manifests itself terribly. And like yeah. the best thing for me is that my parents, uh, I kept with a foundation of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I always I was a Catholic growing up. Um, well, actually, we were Baptist, and uh, where we sing and dance and do all that. And then <laughs> we went from Baptist to to Catholic. I got baptized when I was a. Uh, probably like around eight years old, something like that. Okay. And then uh, we, I went to Catholic school my entire life. So, like, mm. I I think um, one important thing, like, being in a neighborhood like that, even though you're surrounded by crime, surrounded by a lot of bad, giving a young kid a foundation of faith, like something, call what you want, uh, Allah, the Lord, God, everyone has their own different thing, but just the foundation of faith, which most of them have the same principles, mm-hmm. super important in a dangerous world to have faith and belief like for a child so so he can feel safe. It rules to live by, principles yeah. to live by. And that help. That help for me. Yeah, and, uh, you know, a vision of what things could be like, you know what I mean? Yeah. If everybody lived by these principles and these rules, you know, despite what's surrounding you. Yeah. yeah. And an- another thing was um, I, would leave, I would leave Kensington that was kind of, 
a little bit dangerous, this and that. And like a lot of times I would either have, I would run the school or I would get on my rollerblades and I would rollerblade the school and I rollerblade okay. or ran, uh, to, um, Port Richmond, which was all the way on rich Richmond street, um, to St. George, yeah. St. George school. It was about three miles. I was going to say, that's a couple miles. Yeah. Man. About three miles from my original house, but I ran track yeah. and my dad was like, Hey, if you want to get better at track, then you go run. So I started waking up. Put my backpack on, I would run to school, or I'd rollerblade the school if I didn't feel like running. You got to wear a uniform now, St. George, right? Yes, but so, I didn't. I'd put my uniform in my bag, <laughs> and then I would uh, my clothes would be sweaty, and I would get changed in the alley right by the kindergarten area. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> and this is me as a, a 10-year-old ten year old kid. You, you got to be the only day. kid doing that. Yeah. Every day? Yeah. One of the few, baby. Every day? And not every day, but... um. I have, and I just remember my book bag. Sometimes I have too many books, and it would just be smacking me in the back. <laughs> and I would have a big red mark on my back like, yeah. by the time I got to yeah, school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would go in the uh, alley, I'd get there a little early, go in the alley, and then uh, I would get changed um, into my school uniform and then go to school. But like oh. track wise, and like I just knew I was. I knew it was unique because people were like, you fucking ran here, too. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew. And then the more unique it was, Maybe I got attention for it as a kid, and I'm like, you know what? Fuck it, I don't want to be like everyone else. I'm yeah. proud. I'm getting mm-hmm. more attention being myself or doing, you know, doing this thing that kind of is odd and a little bit weird. But I'm getting more attention from that than trying to fit in. So like, I, I just, uh, just that's what I did. And it was a positive thing. You know what I mean? Not only was it keeping you in shape, but it was feeding the other things that you were trying to do because you were boxing at the time, right? I was, uh, no, I, I was like multi-sport. I played, as okay. a young kid, I just did football, basketball, track and field. Okay. I didn't wrestle till later on in my life. But, like, them three sports were, were my main sports all the way up until, like, yeah, like, all the way up until high school. Okay. I didn't start wrestling in high school. Um, How about boxing? When did you, when did you start? Like, boxing, were you in a club when you were? Boxing, you, I went to Front Street Boxing Gym. Okay. There was there was a year in my life where um, my parents couldn't afford the, the tuition, and they were like, "Hey, you know, you guys want to, uh, one of you guys want to basically volunteer to not go to Catholic school this year." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm in, I'm I'm good, um, I'll do it." And so I went to Conwell in fifth grade, yeah. and that it was weird because all my friends I grew up with were in St. George, but I'm yeah. like, "I'll go to Conwell." So I went to Conwell, and Front Street Boxing Gym was right down the street. So I okay. begged my dad, like, "Dad, can I box?" And he didn't really want me to, <clears throat> and, but then he, he signed the paper, gave me the release, and um, I started boxing at Front Street Boxing Gym, fifth grade. That had to be like, it's probably like 10, something like that, maybe yeah. 10 years old. I remember I used to, I used to write on the thing, you used to write your weight. It was, I wrote 85 pounds, so I was 85 <laughs> pounds, whatever yeah. that was. That's when I, that was my first trip to the boxing gym. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> one, I was going to ask you about running the school. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, because in some of the shows that I've, I've seen you do or the interviews that I've heard, I think you mentioned that like from that activity of running the school and you hit on it, it, it kind of began a formula for you for life, which is to like, you know, do the uncommon work, like yeah. be different. Right. And I'm assuming that that's a theme that you've kept with, you know, your, um, training, your fight camps, everything like do more work, do the uncommon work, be different. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That honestly, easy formula, easier like said than done, right? So like sure. everyone says it, right? But then you wake up and the work's there to be done and you don't feel it, right? You're like, damn, I really don't feel it. And I think at a really young age, um, I had a unique ability to ignore my feelings and um, do what I felt was the right thing. And I, at a real young age, I started to separate myself from my feelings. Amen. And um, wrestling further did that to me. Re- gave me a better uh, practice and separate myself from my feelings. And by the time I started my fight career, I was completely void of feelings. <laughs> it was the effort. Yeah. It was the effort, not the emotion. It was, I knew what I had to do and how I felt was the last thing um, mm-hmm. I was worried about. So um, when I started my fight career off, I didn't do a fucking thing I wanted to do. Anything I wanted to do didn't matter. I put myself last, my feelings last, and I knew I had a job that had to get done. I knew I, I needed to be relentless. I needed to um, 
I needed to do a lot of things that I wasn't going to feel good about, that it wasn't going to be comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I just went deep into it. I, want, I probably went a little too deep into it, to be honest with you. I, I became voided of feelings, like, like, and even other people's feelings. Yeah. I had yeah. trouble being empathetic, empathetic and sympathetic toward people because I'm like, because I was so mean to myself, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Man, I was so, I was yeah. so, I didn't give myself a room to make an excuse and I didn't allow anybody around me. So I wasn't really a good friend. I, I, I yeah. need to work on that myself. Yeah. And I feel like that's a common trait <clears throat> amongst the few or entrepreneurs and people that are striving for, to do great and different things is that we tend to be a little selfish, especially like when we're building businesses, you're building your name and the fight game and also businesses, but you really just think about, you wake up and think about the work that has to be done. You don't think about normal people things, right? Um, I heard you say in a prior interview that you were working uh, in cement, uh, cement work or concrete, right? Yeah. And that like, at what point did you know that you were like, I need to get out of here and, and do something meaningful or great with my life? It wasn't like a light bulb moment. It was, no. um, you know, it was my, uh, when I was 18, I was 18 years old. Um, and I was still live, we're still living in Kensington. Um, me and Jamie, we've been together since we were 15 years old. She was with her father. I was mostly at her house, but we're back and forth, um, in Kensington. And, um, my parents moved away when I was 18. They moved to Florida. And so it was me wow. um, and my siblings, and we were splitting the bills. And the bills. You were your siblings and the we, bills. We were just splitting the bills hey. in Kensington, and that was going to be my life. And that was scary for me because, like, I'm a competitor. I'm coming fresh out of uh, North Catholic, uh, ranked top in wrestling. And I'm going to go from that to – my life is about to become, hey, you're a concrete worker, and that's it. And that the idea of me working concrete for a guy and just being monotonous and mundane, no excitement, um, it really scared the shit out of it. It scared me to no end, that, that mm-hmm. idea. I remember writing Jamie uh, some letters when I was younger about how much it scared me. And um, that fear kind of gripped me to the point where I'm like, I, I need to, I need to be competitive again, mm-hmm. and I need to find a gym and uh, whatever that meant, whether it was for money or not money, I just need to be competitive. So I just went, I got, I got to the nearest local gym of guys who were training, and I started to fight. I was fighting every weekend anyway, yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah. I'm like, uh, this is all I know. I did great at wrestling. I did, always loved combat sports. I always loved mm-hmm. to be competitive. So, like, I started doing that. And um, that just started snowballing. As I got deeper into combat and fighting and, and that, um, going to my job became, like, it was like a place that I went to that got in the way of what mm-hmm. I really wanted to do. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then it became almost exhausting to go to work because i'm like you're wasting your time here yeah you got to figure a way out of here so you can just do what you want to do so like that that fear and that anxiety of staying at concrete kind of drove me crazy yep it drove me wild to train at a different level it's crazy to think that you're also a side hustle entrepreneur right like you are a fighter by by trade and business but realistically you experienced the same pain that Joey and I felt in business. Like we were at our day jobs and we were just like, get us the fuck out of here. Like we, we know what we're called to do yeah, and we wanted to do it as soon as possible. And what were you guys doing before this? I was in sales and Joey was in tech. I was in tech. Tech, The the fear of staying the same was, was fucking terrifying compared to the fear of the risk that it takes to build something like this. And, and you know maybe I mean? that's a character trait because I like mm-hmm. I have siblings and they're totally fine with their jobs and that's like I I'm like, hey, everyone's different. So mm-hmm. like um if you're good with a job, great. We need 
you guys need the workers, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah. like, uh, not everyone can be that. Not everyone has that temperament or that is that risk adverse. But like, something in certain people um, won't mm. allow them to do that, and that's we're it's, needed. Yeah. The one j- quote Joey always always likes to say is "to risk is to live," and it's almost even when I was in sales, I just love living life knowing I could either be great or I could fail on the next day. And like uh, that uh, energy and that thrill, like kind of like drives my life still to this day. But one thing that stays common through the, the few is to get through it, we grow through it. And I know you mentioned Jamie's been with you forever almost. Was there any times in your journey that were really dark and hard for you that you like, maybe almost felt like giving up and you guys got through it like any certain way that you would like to share? Oh man. Giving up plenty of times, plenty of times. Any dark times, Jane? That's right. I'm like, shit, man, it's the full of dark times. So like, and that's why, that's why it comes back to our beginning of our conversation was as a young kid, the best gift I could have got given myself, or given from my parents was a foundation of faith because there's going to be a dark times all the time, especially in a journey of like this uncertain and you need something, something to believe in when there's all darkness there, you need to be able to search for light, like even the tiniest bit and then just focus on that light and say, Hey man, I know it's bad, but that teeny bit of light, just keep your eye on it because that's, that's what you want to aim for. Mm -hmm. So like, We've had dark times. Uh, like I said, me and Jamie met when we were 15 years old. Like, like we had Eddie when we had my my firstborn son when we were 20 years old, and I'm chasing. I'm we're not even established yet. Yeah. Um, we were together. F- we met each other five years back. We have our first child. Um, I didn't want to have a child in anyone else's house, so me and Jamie got our first little home, 800 square foot home, probably a mile from here and um we started our family so i started i started started my family a a 20 year old man um with a concrete job and a dream of fist fighting i mean it doesn't get too much darker i'm like man like this if if someone could bet hey Mm -hmm. this is gonna go well (laughs) <laughs> I mean, they'd be like, come on, man, you, you guys are up against yeah. some serious yeah. odds here. But yeah. um, what's, what, was, what was unique in, in our relationship was we knew each other already five years. We met when we were 15, and my wife believed in me, like almost um, believed in me in a delusional way that that – I believed in myself, yeah. like right. almost like, hey, no one else in this room, yeah. they're going to laugh at you guys. Yeah. So you two over there who are believing in this thing you're going to do, mm-hmm. you're out of your freaking mind. Yeah. But my wife believed in me that way. And I think if if you find a woman who can do that for you, a man will, will figure a way out. They'll figure mm-hmm. a way to get it done. Mm-hmm. And then once you begin to have a family and your kids believe in you that way, then it just goes to a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. Like, I got to get this done. Yep. So, like, that was what I had, that kind of energy and that kind of force and that kind of support at 20 years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was like, at 20, I'm like, I got to get this done. Yeah. This, ain't, this, ain't, this can't be a dream. We have to manifest this. Um, and I need to take it that serious. So mm-hmm. we, I took it. Yeah, the sport, the sport. Yeah. No one was millionaire in this sport. That's, yeah. also, that really, that's also a really good point. Like it wasn't fighting wasn't what wasn't what it is today. When but. you say you were training, right? Like you're training in a basement. Like you're doing like basement MMA with like four guys, right? My, my, like you're not at a, a school, right? At this point, no. Like my first facility? introduction was I walked uh, right around Frankfurt. I walked in uh, the cellars that walked yes. down, and I walked down. And I walked down the cellar, and who's there is uh, Steve Haig, my very first coach. Um, this guy, Pierre, he was a kickboxer. And big Joe Pfeiffer, Joe Pfeiffer's father, who <laughs> Joe talks very highly about. <laughs> and um, big Joe Pfeiffer was a boxer, very mm-hmm. good boxer back in the day. 
And them three were in there, and I'm like, okay, so what are we going to do here? <laughs> so and I know those cells, like the Bilcos, like the Bilco doors, the you Bilco open up, doors. you walk down. I open them up. So I so down a concrete floor. Concrete floor. They and they had, they had, uh, you know, the foldable mats? Yeah. They yeah. might have had like three like of them. the kids' gymnastics mats. Yeah, we might have had a total of like a... Eight by eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, okay. And I remember... I, I was a wrestler at the time from mm -hmm. North Catholic. And I'm like, okay, so this is what I'll bring to the table, wrestling. This guy boxes. He's a pro boxer. This guy kickboxes. And Steve Haig did Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So between the four of us. We can put something we, together. We're, we could be a badass yeah. guy. <laughs> so we, we popped in uh, VHS tapes. Yeah. We watched instructionals of the, oh, the top story. guys. Um Marcelo Garcia was great at the time. Mm -hmm. um, you name it. Gracie's, we watched the old UFCs. We watched them because we didn't. there wasn't any resource to go to yeah. for MMA. There wasn't an ATT or a Kill Cliffs to say, yeah. let's go here and, and train at the highest level. Mm -hmm. It was us watching tape. And then most of us had, you know, grew up in gritty neighborhoods and been in fights. And that was it. That was the extent of fighting in two in 2001 2002 yeah. when i began training so you're bringing you, you're bringing something that we can't just like gloss over is you're bringing different skill sets all the guys in that basement but you're also bringing your grit to it where's pierre from pierre was a uh, philly guy or? he moved around he was uh he was in the military and I think he was stationed in London for a while, but he was back here. And Steve Hegg met him. Yeah. Very good kickboxer. He fought on a bow dog card with me. So okay. did Steve Hegg fought on a bow mm -hmm. dog card with me. Um, Big Joe Pfeiffer was a little, he was probably the older of all of us. Okay. But um, that was kind of, dude, that was the start of what's Fight Factory, which uh, was Factory. one of the first MMA schools or teams here in oh, Philadelphia, yeah. mm -hmm. um, fight, fight factory, and that was Steve Haig, and and the found was sort of the founder of that. Us just kind of getting together and yeah, <laughs> just figuring it out. Yeah, I mean that's an amazing story, yeah. amazing story. So you're you're twenty, you're building a family, you're building a career as a fighter, right? When was your pro debut? Was that before your son was born? After? Before. Before I was okay. 19 when I had my pro debut. So I was the year 19 before. years old. Yeah, and that was in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Okay. Um, up the turnpike? Right up the turnpike in Elizabeth uh, for Ring of Combat. And I took the fight on like four months of training. I've trained like four months, and I'm like, hey, I want to fight. Like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doing concrete. I've already, I'm fighting every weekend. Like, yeah. With my friends, getting in fights, getting in trouble. I'm like, I want to fight. And mm -hmm. they're like, hey, you just got to get your medicals. So I got my medicals done. It cost me 500 bucks to get my medicals done. I sold about 200, 300 bucks in tickets. So I was in the hole 200 bucks for my first fight. Yeah. <laughs> didn't even break even. <laughs> I didn't break even. <laughs> um, luckily, I think we got about 75 people there. We sold some T-shirts. Yeah. Okay. Um, and everybody came up from Philadelphia on a cheese bus and we put a keg on the cheese bus and everybody came Classic up Philly and uh, <laughs> That's drank, drank the whole way all the way up to Elizabeth, got off the bus and um, boom, it was like in a, uh, on a basketball court, like a Indoor wreck, like a wreck basketball mm -hmm. court. They put some stands up and we rumbled right there. I, I went against a Matt Sarah purple belt mm -hmm. and Matt Sarah was cornering him. Yeah. And uh, cool. we, I, I knocked him out in like three minutes, and he he didn't get up like for a while. And I thought I killed the first guy oh, I fought. That would be crazy. I was, I got excited, yeah. and I went from excited to to concerned to holy shit, I killed this guy, <laughs> yeah. and it's my very first fight. So he was down for he was down for a minute. They smell and saw everything. He wasn't oh, getting. Oh they God. cut the camera. They cut it again. And when they cut the camera like the third time, the guy guy got up. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, this is wild. Was that first um, stadium experience or or big lights experience anything uh, in comparison to wrestling at the pit in North Catholic? Dude, or? the pit got me prepared for this. Yeah. So like the pit. I own my skills at the pit. That's the real. That was yeah. the real foundation of me competing, 
competing in front of my friends, dealing with the fear, the anxiety, the nervousness, and being able to go out there and just put on at another level. And um, the crowd always did that for me, but I got the support. All them people from the pit, all the people from the the out, out the bars in Philadelphia, all of them just gathered and was like, that kid Eddie's fighting. Mm. And and uh, we all seen him fight in the neighborhood or we all seen him wrestle at the pit. Let's go watch him wherever he's going. And um, that was the kind of, it just grew, man. It grew very fast. Yeah. 75 people. At your first, and now I know you didn't break even, but seventy-five people at your first at your debut is good, and like that's solid, right? I mean, it, in my opinion, that's that's pretty damn I think solid. We had more, but there was a thunder, a snowstorm, snowstorm. snowstorm okay. it, so that's the funny part about Philly too is they might doubt you at first when you when you seem crazy, but having these big dreams. But then when you start to actually put it together and, and start to show some proof of work. They'll really come out and support we you. We respect like, the work in Philly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah you yeah. just can't fuck up because they'll yeah. spit on yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> snowballs out. Exactly. That's, That's what I'm saying. Yeah. There's a snowstorm, so you were actually, it was you were liable to get snowballs at yeah. your pro debut. Yeah, man. So, like, yeah, that was sort of the the birth of it. And then once, I mean, once, once I had my first knockout, it was like, and I, I didn't get paid, but at the time, the UFC was, I think, negotiating the tough deal. They didn't go on tough yet. Mm-hmm. So people were on TV and getting attention. There was just not a lot of money in the sport at all. So there was, like, as I'm doing it, I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, this is, is this a dead end? Is there a path mm-hmm. here? Yeah. And uh, I just kept doing what I enjoyed doing. I was competing. Mm-hmm. It gave me an outlet to compete, mm-hmm. an outlet to exercise, an outlet to live a healthier life per se and um so i just went i went after it and the rest of like what dana white was doing with the ufc they were working to build it at the same time so Mm -hmm. like by the time my third fight came around the ufc uh they had the ultimate fighter on tv Mm -hmm. and then they really broke and people started to make some money and and you started to see a path to make a living through fighting Mm-hmm. And that was probably like my second year into fighting where I'm like, holy shit, I, I could just fight. Like, yeah. I don't I don't have to do concrete work, come home, train twice a day, go to sleep and, uh, and then do concrete work again, yeah. rinse, repeat. I could just fight. And the idea of that was so like it was so that becoming a, a dream and, and becoming a reality. I live there. I lived in that reality, mm-hmm. and then this reality that I was in became so unacceptable <laughs> that I'm like, I got to be there. I got to go there. I have yep. to go because now it's, it's an opportunity, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it on myself to get there, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so we did that. And you we said it grew that. quickly. Like after that pro debut, it started growing quickly. So now you're two years in, and now you're pursuing full-time fighting, right, basically? Yeah, two years in. Two years, three years, year four, mm. um, I, we would pray on this. Hey, Lord, please, if you just give me opportunity to um, to to just quit my job, just not be able to, and just and just be make enough money to be able to train full time. I promise you, I will treat this like a job. I'll stay accountable. I'll never ever take this for granted. And boom, by year four, mm-hmm. I ran I ran to Jamie. We were in on Milnor Street. It's, like I said, we're living in an 800 square foot house. We had little Eddie, and I ran upstairs and I said, "Near here, near here, right here." Yeah, yeah. We're literally half a mile from here. Yeah. And I said, "It's that's it. I'm done. I'll never work in." Uh, Bow Dog mm-hmm. offered me a four fight deal for thirty thousand dollars a fight. So, four fights. At that point in my career, I was fighting five times a year, so that would be a yeah. hundred and twenty grand for four fights. I think we were making forty grand a year doing concrete work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all year. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah. I was a saver. I was frugal, so I had money in the bank. And I said, "All right, let's. This is it. This is everything yeah. I prayed for. This is everything I was dreaming about and thinking of." And boom, we got we got our first opportunity through Bodog to um, make this a life, make it a career. And God, did I go? On, I went on fire then. Yeah, I went on fire. Well, you 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 had a tank. You had a full tank, man, and you had a promise to fulfill. And it was like, you had- hey, you said, you you said you would do this. Yeah. I'm yep. giving it to you. Yep. 
Time to so deliver. What you gonna do now? Yeah. It's like, all right, now it's time to earn it. When yeah. you sign that deal, do you get the the whole lump sum of, at once, or like, is it, is it like life changing like that, where you're like, oh my god, we have like one hundred and twenty thousand dollars in the bank, or is no, it, is it over time? Okay, no, it's uh, so it's still, it's still like if I get injured, right? Yeah. Then if I don't fight, then um, I don't get paid, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, for thirty thousand dollars a fight, when you're 20, 20, 21 years old, it's like. Or no, no, no. At the time, I was 22 or 23. Yeah. It's like, shit, I'm fighting. Yeah. I don't care what's wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, huh? And we had Anthony on the way. Yeah, we're at 2008. Yeah, Alf on the way at this time. Yeah. My, okay. my second, my second yeah. born. Um, so, that's around, yeah, around 2008. So, now it's time to deliver. What What's funny is uh, I wrote something on my Instagram not long ago, and it was like, I, I basically wanted this in my life, right? I wanted to be free. I didn't want a boss. I didn't want to be told what to do. I wanted to be I wanted to wake up when I wanted to wake up. And that was why I wanted to uh work for myself and have my own thing, right? Mm-hmm. So that was a big part of the reason, the freedom that comes with working for yourself, right? So when I did concrete, I had to wake up at five thirty. I had a boss at six o'clock telling me, do this, do that, mm-hmm. do this. If it was a weekend, he was saying, hey, um, you got to work. This and-. So my first day, I opened my eyes. I'm from a free man. I don't have a job. <laughs> what time is it? 5.30. Yeah. yeah. 5.30. By the time I get to the gym, my coach is yelling at me, <laughs> telling me what to do. I said, not a damn thing changed. <laughs> But not a damn thing changed, but I was getting to do what I loved. I was getting to pursue yeah. something I loved. That's right. And I would get the benefits of it if it mm-hmm. turned out good. And I was okay with that. Okay. Um, but you're not any freer. Freedom is up here. It's yes. in your mind. Yes. But yes. you will get the benefits of your hard work versus your boss getting the benefits sure. of your hard work. And that sp- was what changed. You're speaking yep. my language with the freedom. Like That's what drove me to want to be an entrepreneur so much. But the freeing part is that you you know you're doing it for yourself, so you don't mind the work. The, yeah, yeah. the work you know it's all going to you, yeah. so you're okay with putting out every day. Yeah, there's different levels of freedom. Like everybody consolidates it into just one word, but there's like financial freedom, there's time freedom, there's freedom of relationships. Like what you're describing is what we talk about all the time, which is freedom of purpose. Mm-hmm. Like. You know, you know, at that point, you knew why you were on this planet. You knew your purpose. You know what you needed to do, and now you were free to pursue it. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's a beautiful thing. It's almost the the cliche quote is, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. And I always say cliche quotes sound cliche until they actually make sense in your in your yeah, real yeah. life. Until you're living sure. it. Yeah, exactly. It. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I, I say it all the time. Yeah, it was... I haven't worked since I was 23, 24 years old. We joke about it. Yeah. My... My family will be like, Ed, uh, you know, what time you got work tomorrow? Like, I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's a joke. Like, yeah. But it's dead serious to me. Mm-hmm. I, I held myself just as accountable as my boss said. My, if my boss is going to say, hey, be there at 630 and I'll show up, then you're damn sure I'm going to show up for myself. Yep. So when, yep. when it was my time to put my schedule together, nobody fucked with my schedule. Yep. Mm-hmm. My schedule is 630, be here. I'm going to be home. I was training three times a day. Yeah. I had no more freedom than I had. I probably yeah. had less. Yeah. But I knew I was on. I was a man on fire. Yeah. Now, yeah. I, I I took the ceiling and I ripped it off and I went, "Hey, I'm I'm headed to this. I'm headed to the moon." Yeah. So like that's how I felt, and it, it was all up to me now, and mm-hmm. I was okay with taking that on, taking on that responsibility. For sure. So man on fire, man on fire goes to be a world champion. The first to be a world champion in both belts were in UFC, right? Pretty yes, sure. Yes. Yep. No, there is no other. I don't believe. Yeah. There's no other man to do that. And I then, think. you're that's you. Yeah, I'm the guy. Like you're the guy. <laughs> you're the guy. You're the that's guy. Awesome. So we won't get into we won't get into everything, right? All your bouts. My question for you is, and maybe Drew has a question too. Uh, of all your bouts, right? Which one taught you the most about yourself? Um, whether it was a win, loss, or no contest, like of, of all your fights, which one taught you the most about yourself or taught you the most about life? You know, an important lesson. 
My God. So, like, I have notes. I have notes after – I mostly notes after all my losses, mm-hmm. all my major losses. I have notes that I, um, that I write down. And I think that's, like, an important uh, part of taking big losses is um, kind of reflecting, critiquing, and then more importantly, forgiving yourself for it. And then mm-hmm. writing a map on wh- how you're going to move forward and not do it again type thing. And that it's a way to help forgive yourself and move on as an athlete. So, mm-hmm. like, I have, I have tons of notes and lessons. But, like, I think my biggest win um, – and I think it had more to do with where I was at in my life, what was on the line at the time, and overcoming what was in front of me was the second um, fight with Mike Chandler. Um, we were not in a great. We weren't in a great spot. Um, we moved from Philadelphia out to Florida because a manager basically was a supporting me for a little bit for a couple months we were low low on money and the promotion was suing me uh, me and bellator were in a lawsuit and um they were trying to get me to go bankrupt <laughs> so i can cooperate with them and resign with them so it was a very odd spot i was at war with the promotion that i fought for i was at war with my boss And my boss wanted me to devalue me. He wanted me to not win so I could re-sign and be broke and do what he wants me to do. So, like, really weird spot. Not a lot of money. Not in our, uh, not at home. Not in Philadelphia. We're away from our house. Me and my wife are renting a house for the first time. We're renting a place. We have our own home at home. Yeah, We're renting. We're just trying to chase what's there in florida the opportunity that's there in florida and um i just remember making a decision that i won't lose i made that decision before the camp even started Hmm. and i was going to do i was going to be relentless in my approach to win so i made that decision and i found out things about myself like where i can go not just physically but spiritually if i just decide if I just decide and I'm willing to do whatever it takes that I felt like I could manifest, I can make whatever I want to happen. And that was like eye opening for me. And I went there. I went to a crazy place getting ready for this fight because I made a decision to win and I, and I wasn't going to let anything else happen. And that was a crazy fight. I knew it was going to be a crazy fight. I knew how deep I was going to have to dig. Mm-hmm. Because I was fighting a, a guy, very, very tough opponent, who can take damage, give damage, and stay in there. And um, that second fight was like, it got spiritual inside there. Mm-hmm. And I prepared in a way that um, that I just wasn't willing to lose. And that was, a, I, le- I learned a ton from the camp, from the training camp. And even the a- aftermath of the fight, I learned a ton about myself. And I left, I left it all. With a like basically a big fuck you to my boss, that he's not gonna yeah. he's not gonna control me. Mm-hmm. He's not gonna tell me what to do, mm-hmm. no matter what evil he's trying to do to me or try to beat mm-hmm. me down. I'm the boss of myself, and I, I took complete accountability for what I had to do, and um and went after it full full force. Sound like you you sound like you had to win a fight before the fight. Like, oh, it, before we, you even went into the fight, you had to win a fight. We're up against everybody. Yeah. Everybody. The opponent was the smallest of, of the worries. Mm-hmm. It was the promotion yeah. trying to fuck with me, trying to fuck with my family, mm-hmm. our, our resources, our money. It was, yeah. it was a bad spot. And all while it's just me, Jamie, and the kids. We, didn't, we, weren't, we were in a foreign place in Florida mm-hmm. trying to meet new people. So it was basically us against the world. It's that's I'm finding so many like even feeling more connected to you after this conversation because there's so many mindset similarities. I mean, I know we we do different things for work, but I always tell people the way Joey and I got here because everyone's starting in a power brand nowadays and we're start, everyone's starting a business in 2024. But the thing that separated us from everyone else is that we had a relentless refusal to quit and like we were ready to die 
doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, my question for you, though, um, we have a lot, like I said, a lot of like side hustle entrepreneurs or people chasing big dreams alongside of their main jobs. So is there any advice you would give to someone who's chasing a bigger dream or goal that um, you would like to give them for the people at home listening? Yeah. Um, there was a fighter recently. I'm not going to say his name. I'm not going to say his name. Um, that was on, he was on Instagram and I seen, he was doing, I know he fights, but then he got into one thing and then he got into another thing. And then, um, I just texted him and I was like, Hey man, so you say you're not doing the fighting anymore? And he goes, no, no, I'm still fighting. And I said, well, you're either a fighter or you're this. Mm. You can't be both. Mm -hmm. So, um. You got to commit to what you're doing. And if you're doing anything else, that just tells me you don't truly believe in the thing that's in front of you because you wouldn't do anything else. So, like, if you really have a dream, you need to commit full to the dream because your competition isn't fucking doing real estate. They're not dabbling in other things. Your competition is psychotic about what they do Mm -hmm. and they're obsessed about it and they love it. And there's nothing more that they want than to crush you and everyone around them. So like that needs to be your approach. It needs to be burn the ships, inflate the boats, kill everyone. And your approach needs to be that. It can't be anything else. Mm -hmm. You will get murdered if it's anything else. So my biggest advice would be is just commit wholeheartedly or do the other thing, mm-hmm. but don't do both. You'll just be kind of shitty at both. Do the one and become great at it. Um, and if you're, you are bringing something else in and dabbling in that, then, then this ain't for you because you don't believe in it. So like, um, that's, that would be my only advice. And the, yeah. <laughs> the biggest people, the best people that I connect with and, and love aren't the most successful. It's just the ones who like unapologetically don't give a fuck yeah. and yeah. go after it. It's like, yeah. look at this dude. Yeah. Look at what he, he don't care if he wins or loses, but at least he's fully committed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you could be an asshole. I like guys who are assholes who are fully committed to being assholes. I'm yeah. like, this guy is a fool on it. <laughs> but I kind of like it because, yeah. like, he's wholeheartedly one. Yeah. That's what I connect with is someone yeah. who's all in um, and don't don't really, you know, have a second, third, fourth thing where they're just kind of, eh, I'm not sure. Yeah. And that, that would be my biggest advice is uh, you commit and then sell the people around you as good as you can for them to jump on board with you and also yeah. commit mm-hmm. the way you are. Yeah. Sell them in a way where they don't want to do anything else either. Yep. 100%. They can see the vision yeah. just as clear as you can. Yeah, I don't think that it's it's not only the biggest advice, it's probably the best advice you could give somebody. I'm going to go run through the, through the yeah, brick wall. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to run through a brick wall. No, I mean, I, I feel like that's that's the best advice, and we see that a lot now, especially in the entrepreneur space. Like, As soon as things get hard and it requires that next level of commitment, they switch to something else, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And then they start rebuilding again instead of being able to to double, triple down, quadruple down like you've done in your life over and over again. Like that's a consistent theme yeah. with you, right? I mean, adversity has shown up in different ways mm-hmm. and you've said, plan's not changing, yeah. zero options. Like you tore the ceiling off, you saw the light and you're going and that's it, Yeah, you know? That, so, that kind of commitment, that that's all it has to be. There is no other way. If someone tries to say, oh, try it this way, try it. So there's no shortcut or magic pill or hack to to get there? No, No, of course not. Absolutely not. Of course not. Full commitment and you take full responsibility of everything. Yeah. If you won, you won. If you lost, you lost. And that's the kind of accountability that needs to to happen. So it's like Mm -hmm. getting involved in other things is just, I'll tell you, I, I spend so many plates and um, I've had so many opportunities. I have people that ask me to start a gym a million times throughout my career. 
20 years of my career, started gyms, do this, do that. I could have easily mm-hmm. started a gym. I could have had a gym for a decade now and been having a gym that I'm making a half a million, quarter million dollars a year on. It would have been a really safe route. But I I knew, I knew 100% the, the kind of person I am. I would not fo- be able to fully commit to the main thing that gave me everything that that we have is and that's that's fighting. And mm-hmm. Joey and I were it's so funny. Joey and I were just talking about this before the show. It's everyone thinks discipline is getting up and running and eating well and and training hard, but realistically, another side of discipline that everyone doesn't see is saying no to opportunities and, and shiny <laughs> objects, yeah. right? Like that's maybe even harder than than doing because we love training we love beating our, ourselves up but saying no is sometimes the hardest part mm-hmm. that, bro it's so funny you say that because i thought i i think someone could write a book on on the idea of that today mm-hmm. the idea of saying no because back in the day when you were training i would ask i would ask a guy hey what should i do and they would go, all right, well, you're going to run a couple miles. You're going to go to the gym. You're going to skip some rope. And then you're going to do some myth. And you can actually write a book today. I, I would go up to people and say, hey, what should I not do? Because mm-hmm. we're, in a, we're in a place where we have so abundant of resources. You could do anything. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. There's nothing that's not available to me that's the same thing isn't available to anybody yeah. anywhere. Mm-hmm. We have the same amount of information. We could probably go to the same gyms. It's all there for you. There's the the big play is in what what you're saying no to. Yeah. Are you saying no to the party? Are you saying no to the drinks? Are you saying no to all the all them other things that kind of get in the way, um, that interrupt or disrupt you on your path to your goal? Yeah. And they might the no would could potentially even take you further than like the training does. Like if you just skip the drinks or the parties. You might be a better fighter, or realistically, you will be a better fighter on Monday than mm-hmm. you would be if you did. Yeah, that's the that's the problem with society. Like information and access is so freely available, you can do anything, and then a whole lot of people end up doing nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what I mean because they're trying to do everything. There's too many options. It's too many options, and, no, and nobody's fully committed. You got a guy who's selling Amazon, and he's like, you know what, I want to, I want, and it's like, what do you, what do you, you need to know yourself. Mm-hmm. what do you like and then kind of go from there but like mm-hmm. the best way to get there what i tell my kids is try in the beginning try a bunch of shit don't don't be afraid to try stuff and fall on your face because it's in that journey where you'll find out oh this is what i love to do mm-hmm. i tried everything else I, I had the courage to go after everything else this is what i really like yeah you know it's hard to teach nowadays too because with everything in today's society you press a button and it's there, right? You press DoorDash and it's at your front door. In building a business and building your dreams like you did, it takes 10 years, multiple years of fucking grinding and sacrifice and sweat and blood before you see any amount of results. Mm -hmm. And we're so conditioned in today's society to just have the results immediately that it's hard to be like, oh, you want results in this, though? You're going to have to wait a while. Yeah, there's no microwave yeah. for it. You know, you can't yeah. microwave these type of results, the results that we're after. You know what I mean? Just can't do it. Yeah. And, and, and I, um, I, I was telling someone not long ago, um, you, you almost have to live here because, like you're saying, you're going to work your asses off. You're going to work your tail off. You're going to do this. You're going to do everything right. And then nothing will manifest. In fact, you may feel like you're completely failing. So if you're looking at reality, it's bleak. It's it's like dark. So you can't live in reality. You have to be delusional in a way and live in your dreams. You have to stay there because Mm -hmm. everyone's going to come and go, dude, are you kidding me? You ain't got... This ain't working. That ain't working. Your friends are gonna come. Your parents. It's not yep. working out for you. You have to live in your dream, and you gotta ignore the nonsense of reality. And in a way, you have to be delusional. You you have to be. Um, oh. It's an it's actually an important trait of entrepreneurs. And in my world, you have to be delusional because like mm. fighting is. There's nothing too super great about. <laughs> like I want to get 
hit and punch yeah. and yeah. suffer most of the day mm. all for a dream of a world title or it's like, i just posted on a few months instagram today rather be obsessed than be average yep. like you can call me all you want you you said delusional earlier and i'm glad it came back up because i agree with you it is a necessary component like delusional self-belief and if you have someone else in your corner your figurative corner yeah. or your literal corner that has that delusional self-belief in you, that's a multiplier, dude. That's like a 10X, 100X multiplier yeah. for your work. Work hard and have delusional self-belief in what you're doing. Yeah. You know the outcome. It's it's a thing of beauty. I mean, like uh. me, me, and Jay, me and Jamie used to um, drive around the neighborhood where we live now. I, we lived in a shitbox. I was <laughs> not a shithole, but like we were like... <laughs> 20 is what I could afford when I was 20. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was a smallest little house, probably, you know, band-aided pieces, drop ceiling, dry, like mm -hmm. not a very nice house, but like it's what we could afford. It's what we had. But we never lived in that reality. We always lived in what we could achieve, what we could have. In your vision. And um, we lived in it so much, we go look at it. Hey, mm -hmm. go check this neighborhood out. We drive, oh, man. What if we live here? This would be a freaking awesome, yeah. you know, and that them kind of trips kind of, it allows you to get the excitement to go for that. You know what I mean? You're speaking my language with the, with the manifestation and the visualization. Like it does sound woo woo, but it works. Like, and it does. You can see it play out in your life specifically. And I do agree that having someone in your life, your life partner, be someone that's always cheering for you. Like I could go home and tell Amanda we're going to be billionaires in the next two years, and she'll be like, all right, let me know when we're Same. there. Like, and, and we're, Same. She's on the ride. Like, that's it. You're, you're One thing that a lot of people don't, it sounds woo-woo, so they don't admit it, but your thoughts become things. Yeah. Thoughts become things, right? And, like, if somebody's having a shitty time, they're in a winter, they're having a bad time in life, if they have the awareness to detach and reflect on their thoughts, mm -hmm. I guarantee that the overwhelming majority of their thoughts are negative. Um, They're not seeing themselves in a better place than they are right now. You know what I mean? But if you have that awareness and that vision to do what you did and have, let's take a ride and let's take a look at where we want to live and yeah, imagine how that just, feels. The focus is just off. Mm -hmm. That's exactly. a powerful story, though, the fact that you guys would literally drive yeah. through the neighborhood. Oh, we drove, we, whatever, well, I'm, we, I'm, whatever we wanted collectively, we just went to go look at it. Yep. Sometimes yeah. you just got to see it. Go, you know? to the yeah. go to the dealership, sit in the car. Yeah, you that, know what I mean? Or cut the pictures out of the magazine, glue them on the board. Yeah. Jane, you know what I mean? They're 19, 20 years old. I had a, I made my own vision board mm -hmm. and it, I don't have it. I wish I did. But by the time I was 33 years old, 33. So what it took 14 years within 14 years, mm. I had everything on that board and more and okay. um, like a every single thing and more. Um, and I tell people the only thing I regret is that I didn't fucking ask for more. Yeah. Because because if I knew I was gonna get everything that I wanted, I would have fucking asked for you more. Yeah. That's the only Even thing I, I would have did different. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Your big goals were almost too small. Yeah, yeah bigger, they were too small. Uh, like, so like even like with my kids, I'm like, ask for it. You're gonna get if if you want it. You know, mm -hmm. this is a reciprocal world. If yeah. if you if you're willing to give a little bit, you'll get back. If you want it, go for it. Mm -hmm. And don't don't ask whatever you're thinking about. You want double it, yeah. triple it, because it'll oh, yeah. give to you what you want. It'll give to you what you ask for. Oh yeah, oh yeah. If you put the work in. Oh yeah. That's the thing. You had that. You had that. You had the work ethic and the refusal to quit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So let's talk. We can sit here and talk for hours. Oh, yeah. Bob. I don't even know how far we're in. Let's talk about. Uh, so we're talking about vision. Let's talk about what's next. Like what you're working on now. Um, any projects that you want to highlight or tell our community about? Specifically, you know, our community that's in Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah, or so the suburbs. Some big things in big things in Philly, Bucks County. Um, one, number one is um, we want to bring BKFC to Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. That's the next step, right? So we're going to bring get it sanctioned here in Philadelphia, and we want to do a big uh, BKFC event at the Wells Fargo or one of these big arenas mm -hmm. in Philadelphia. Kind of blow it up here. Blow the sport up here. It's a fight. Philadelphia is the best fight in town on oh, earth. Yeah. So, like, to bring something like that here, I think we'd sell out the Wells Fargo or sell out the Leah Chorus or one of these. Would one you of these fight towns. that? Absolutely. I absolutely will. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. All Philly will be there. Then. Yeah. <laughs> kind of blow that up. Yeah. And um, number two is um, 
we are I'm partnering with uh, Jim, Jim Worthington of the Newtown Athletic Club, mm-hmm. and we're working on it's actually cleared out, and we already started um, mocking up like the build out of a that's about a 20,000 square foot combat arena, and we're gonna have some partners in that to build out this arena, mm-hmm. and it's gonna be on the lines of like a state of the art combat center recovery, um, like college level um, strength and conditioning turf track um probably about eight thousand square foot of mat space cage boxing area so like i want to build out what i would have wanted as a 19 20 year old kid to get ready for fights Mm. the best possible place i can get ready and my job is to bring in the best resources the best coaches around Mm. to train and and make the next ufc world champion next to me make the next world champions that are you know, our next future group coming. I love that, dude. I love that. Where you got a partner in us if you need somebody for apparel. Yeah. Fight where you oh, got yeah. apparel. Yeah. Apparel yeah. partner in us for, for that. Dude, I can't, I literally can't thank you enough. I knew this conversation was going to be great, but it was actually electric like a yeah. yeah. hundred yeah. times. A yep. hundred times the electricity that I thought um, you were going to bring. So thank you again. That's awesome. Thank man. you, brother. Thank, thank you. you thank you. You and you know you have an open invite to HQ. You know anytime, <laughs> anytime. Awesome come club, on, man. come on it. through. I love come it. on through. Yeah. We can train on our five by five mats. Over yeah, there. so we got so we got a little bit of a pre-fight factory mat yeah. over there where I roll with my dummy. It's a yeah. ten by ten. So there you go. Well, well, you know you gotta start somewhere. All you need is space and opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ain't that, ain't that the truth? You, ain't that the truth? All right, I'm gonna leave the field with something. Uh, always choose hard work over handouts. Always choose effort over entitlement. No one owns you, no one owes you, you're one of the few. Let's hunt.